This is Gary Hartley by the chalkboard. My guest today is Impilo Nkabule from Swaziland in Africa, born and raised there. He lives in the United States now. He's an attorney. We will talk about that today. He uh, very much has a passion for knowledge and enlightenment, and I'm looking forward to discussing that and valuing family and relationships and seeking out wisdom. Pilo, welcome. Thank you so much, Gary, for having me in your show. I'm excited to be here. I am really glad that you're here. I have visited Africa once. I was in Zambia, which is north of uh, Swaziland. Uh, we still call it Swaziland. The, the king there apparently changed the name, what, two years ago? I think. Oh, yeah, 2018. He changed the name to Eswatini. So if you go with Eswatini, you still be fine. If you go with Swaziland, people will know what you're talking about. But um, on the record now, uh, it has been changed to Eswatini. Yes. And from what I understand, because I had to do a little research <coughs> to uh, know a little about your country, that Swaziland or Eswatini is. I believe the only country in Africa that still has a monarchy, a king. Is that correct? Oh, you are right, Gary. That's the only country with absolute monarchy. And I think that's how usually people uh, refer to it. It's absolute monarchy. It's uh, ran by a king. There is a, a family that has been there. You know, we call them the Lamini dynasty because we are ruled by a certain clan uh, that came into the now uh, country called Swaziland, and they found some other tribes there. Amongst them were the Ngambules, meaning our tribe or our clan, and there are other clans that I may mention, which you may not have any idea who I'm talking about. And they found them there. Somehow, you know, you know when you find people in a territory, you we have some kind of fight, wars, try to uh, get the territory. Others are defeated, others win. Those who are victors, they uh, they stay and uh, eventually become the rulers of the land. For instance, the Laminis were the ones who ended up ruling the place. As a matter of fact, you know, when Africa was going through what is called the scramble for Africa, when the European powers came in to conquer or to colonize the African people. You know, what the English will do, will come into a country and they will not remove the system of government, the traditional system of government of chiefs or, or kings or the tribal leaders. They will work with them and then introduce the Western government where you have the executive, you have the legislator, we have called the court system. They will introduce that and recognize the leader because that's how they can govern or rule the people is by having the recognized leader talk to their own people. So they were smart in that way to not destroy the system of government that they found. They allow it to go side by side with the Western government, a system of government that they introduced so as to avoid a constant war, having difficulty communicating with the people that they are trying to, to colonize. So that's what happened. So most of the time, the tribe they will choose one tribe and then that tribe will be the one that will be 
uh, they will call the leader of the tribe not a king. If he is found to be a king, they will call him a paramount chief. Because obviously in England, there was the king or the queen. You know, the, that's how they would refer to the royalty there. So in the, when they, they come to a country, they will call the leader of the tribe or the leader of the people a paramount chief. That's the person that they will work with. So that's what happens with the Laminis. They were the ones who, who uh, 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 the colonizers worked with. And when we talk of history of Swaziland, it's mostly the history of the Lamini clan. The other clans, it's a little bit silent about them. So we don't have much about them in the books. When you go to school to learn the history of Swaziland, it's mostly about the, the, the ruling clan. A lot of history is written that way, right? <laughs> the, oh yeah. The the winners of wars write the history, you know, the leaders write the history, and sometimes the other people get left out of history. So what was it like growing up there under a monarchy? That's a very different thing than most of the world experiences. How how is that different growing up where you have a, a king rather than you know, like a democracy and a government like we do here? Well, for a long time, people in Swaziland loved their, their king. Um, there was a, a very wise king in the country called King Sopuza II. I don't know if you came across that when you were doing your research. He was a very, very wise man. So what he, he did there, he recognized that he was in power and he, he was there, he has to be, you know, to take care of his own people. So the people loved him. They didn't have any problem with the monarchy. And you know how sometimes uh, the media will broadcast what is happening in the rest of Africa, where there is some kind of democracy and people, the one party is fighting the other and there's constant war, there are rebels. So that has been used to show that you see you don't want any other system but the monarchy. So for the longest time, people felt comfortable with the king. But now the people are not happy with the present king. They, because he, I think they view him as, as self-serving, serving his own family, the royalty. And uh, there have been wide reports by newspapers that he is taking from the public purse and only entertaining himself and his family, not caring about the people. So for the longest time, as I've said, people were fine with the monarchy. I think now they've moved in the direction of wanting change, wanting to have power, you know, come back to them because they don't elect their own prime minister as you will have it in, in, in England uh, where they have some kind of constitutional monarchy. Uh, ours, it's not a constitutional monarch per se. So now the people, I think that as you hear the vibe, you realize that people want to have their own uh, prime minister, elect them, go to parliament and uh, have their own representative from, uh, from uh, the highest office or elect their own representative into the highest office in the land, which is the prime minister per se, and have the king not be involved in politics because now he's more involved in politics. Yeah. That sounds like a really interesting and different way to, uh, to, you know, to experience what uh, a form of government than what we have experienced here in, in a lot of countries. Well, that's neat. Um, 
So you you have a uh, you have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in law, and you got your bachelor's degree back home in Swaziland. Yes, I uh, studied law in Swaziland uh, after high school. And uh, after that, I went and joined a law firm in Swaziland. I joined a, a very intelligent criminal law attorney. So I found that he was by himself. He didn't have another attorney helping him do the work. So we worked quite fine with him. I enjoyed my experience with him learning the law. I was practicing mostly criminal law, but I came in and tried to bring balance and have civil suits such as torts, contract law, employment law, because in our jurisdiction, we, we practice almost everything. You, the economy is quite a small economy. The country is small, not very many people, about a million people. So if you try to specialize, you'll run out of business. You won't be able to have a lot of clients. So we, you'll find that you are doing civil suits, you are doing criminal law, you, are, you may have instructions relating to construction law and other fields of the law, but mainly uh, the instruction that people will get will be family law, criminal law, civil suits, such as contracts and uh, delicts and, uh, and other, uh, other aspects of the law. So the, it's not like in the US where you have, you know, a huge, uh, uh, you know, field of law with all kinds of uh, practical laws, such as, uh, you know, uh, security, securities laws, uh, such as what happens with stock exchange. There are all kinds of practices within the area of uh, uh, the corporate law. And there is energy law. There are all kinds of, 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 uh, of laws here. So somebody is spoiled for choice when he comes out of law school. So, but where I come from, you don't have really a lot. The moment you are introduced as an attorney or you start practicing as an attorney, you are a litigator automatically, meaning you will have Gary coming in and you hear his story within the first five minutes, you already know what law is applicable. And then you, you must decide what papers or what suits to file, what papers to file in court. And you have to decide which court you have to file your papers to your suit in. And, um, you know, you have to go and argue for your client in court or go through an entire trial. The fact that you are practicing, nobody is safe from that. Nobody can say, oh no, I'm only drafting papers. Oh no, I'm a corporate attorney. I'm only drafting contracts. You can never find that. You, you do all that. That's the kind of experience that you go through. Unlike in America, you can practice the entire life without going to court, without knowing so much about the rules of the court. So that's what I did uh, in Swaziland before coming to, to the U.S., yeah, that's really interesting because over here where you have several hundred million people, attorneys could specialize in something specific and do really well at that. But coming from Swaziland, where you said there's only about a million people, yeah, you you wouldn't have the opportunity to specialize so much. You You would have to know a real broad range of law because you would have a lot of different clients coming to you for lots of different reasons. 
Exactly. That's what happened. Very few people specialized, but when they specialize, they will leave out criminal law because the way things are organized, criminal law, it's not that uh, it will not make you a lot of money, you know. So if you specialize, which only there are those who specialize in labor matters or employment matters, but they will also do like a, a civil suits such as contractual suits or totes and stuff like that, but they won't do criminal law. Others will be more like 80% doing criminal law and less civil suits, but you can't really specialize completely and cut out other laws. You will really run out of business you won't provide for your family. Okay. So you came to the United States and got a master's degree in law. Did you have to specialize in a specific uh, direction when you got your master's degree? Well, I came with a certain interest, with a certain plan. I, when, I was, when I worked with the attorney that launched my uh, legal practice, I worked with him for five years. And a year before coming to the U.S., I joined a big law firm that has corporate clients. And I was kind of like, oh, well, criminal law, there are a lot of things that happen there. You are dealing with criminal because I was a defense attorney. So you're dealing with criminal. Sometimes I feel like, oh, my conscience is not excited about some of these cases because we have to defend people we, we, we term criminals. Some of the cases, you really have to find a way of defending a person that <laughs> has uh, committed uh, some offense. Sometimes I will allow certain cases, you know, to pass me because I feel like I can't defend this. You know, sometimes you 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 be dealing with conscience a lot of the time, having this in, internal rest. So I was like, oh well, I think I'll be interested in in more corporate law. So when I came to the U.S., I um, I had the mindset of picking classes that are related to corporate law. So when I got here, I got into Brigham Young University, Ruben Choi Clark Law School. I did introduction to, uh, to the American legal system so as to understand how the law is different here, which was, which was just merely introductory. And I, I did also uh, a course called um, transactional legal drafting, which is more of contracts. It's just learning how to, to review contracts, draft contracts, a little bit more. And I also took antitrust law, which in ev everywhere outside the US is called competition law. So all these, uh, you can tell that that has to do with corporate law, nothing criminal law. And I also did, uh, I'm trying to remember corporate governance, you know, so that's more of stuff for in-house counsel. I also took that course because you, you just never know. I may go back to Swaziland and find that I ended up I end I end up in in the corporate world. So I must be aware how to advise the client when I am in in-house counsel. So those are some of the courses that I I took when I I came to the U.S. to do my master's degree. Okay, so did they? Did they accept your degree from Swaziland when you wanted to pursue your master's degree? That was the main requirement. You must have a first. As a matter of fact, the program is provided by a number of universities in the U.S. 
Uh, it's called the LLM program, which is the master's degree in law. It's basically for international attorneys. So you can take that master's degree, which is a year, if you were not, if you did not have the first degree as an attorney or a first degree as a, as a law degree, I should say. So you won't be able to, to be accepted uh, just right from the start. Okay. So growing up in, in Swaziland, you, you mentioned that you had a, a life of subsist, subsistence farming there. Oh, yeah. I, I consider myself, when I talk to people, I consider myself as somebody who, had li who has lived in two worlds, at the not really at the same time. I grew up, you know, in the city and there was a time where my, uh, my parents sent me to live with grandma or great grandma in the rural areas. And that's where I think I learned more about life. Because when I look back, I realize that was real life. Why? Because today we find ourselves inundated with GMOs, you know, with dirty water, dirty food, you know, dirty air, you know, in, in the whole industrialized world. But when we were there, I was very close to nature. Sustenance farming, it means that you need to be behind the plow and there are oxen that are pulling, you are cultivating the feeds, you are plowing, you are planting at a certain time of the season. You know, just going through the law of the farm at a certain time of the season, you are, you are weeding and comes to a time where you are enjoying the corn. We call it maize there, the, those grain of, those heads of grain. Uh, in the US is, and the Western world is called corn. So you will enjoy fresh corn around December, somewhere in March, you are harvesting and you take your harvest and put it in a crib so that it can be exposed to the elements and dry up. And then you remove the grain from, uh, from the head and uh, you put it in a tank and a huge tank. So it's kind of like food storage. And over the season, when you, you, you go through the winter season where you are not out there in the fields, you have something to eat. You take the grain and you grind it, it you take it to the mill and you grind it and it becomes uh, something like flour, which we call maize meal. And that becomes, no, that's really a stable food from my country. And you can eat that with meat, with all other things almost similar to mashed potatoes when it's cooked. It's more solid, not, uh, not light. So that's the kind of life that I live. The other thing that I look back and I enjoyed, I was kind of like a shepherd, you know, minding correctly. You'll take them out of the crawl and uh, take them for grazing in the fields. Uh, you go up to the mountains far away from home and you come back in the evening, you put them in the crawl. Not only cattle, but also we will have goats and sheep. So living that life, you will be exposed in the wilderness to all kinds of fruits, natural fruits, you know. And uh, we were healthy, strong. We will do milking too of the cows and we eat the, the milk. So natural from the cow, not one that is pasteurized or uh, with chemicals. So that what I consider real life. We were close to nature, we were out there, sometimes in the wilderness, as I would say, 
barefooted as a young man heading carefully and uh, your the soles of your feet become hardened because you they are used to walking on barefoot on the soil and out there in the wilderness and uh, you'll have all kind of thorns going under your feet and sometimes you'll be limping while heading carefully and you have to sit down and try and take it out and move on with life that kind of sometimes you will or on Mondays you'll take the the cattle drive them to the dipping tank at, uh, for cleansing and you come back sometimes you have to do that before going to school you know i i know today hardly people will hardly do that will stand that because you'll be tired before going to class but you will have to withstand that kind of life i think what made us strong and withstand that and still learn in class was because of the food that we ate there was nothing close to what we call gmos today everything was what we made ourselves we made our food and i feel like boy i need to go back there i don't think i'm excited about gmos and all that hmm. yeah you were talking about the the cornmeal that looks like mashed potatoes and I, I was introduced to that when i went to africa i was in zambia and watching you know them make that and take all take the time to cook it and then it's sitting in front of you that's what i thought it i knew it wasn't mashed potatoes but that's what it looked like to me but it was always so good with the they had they would serve it with uh, uh gr some kind of green vegetables and and maybe some meat but uh yeah, and up there they call it uh, nchima. Oh yeah, and we've got all kinds of names in Africa. In Zambia, we call it nchima. In uh, Kenya, they call it ukali. In Ghana, they call it fufu. I forget what they call it in Nigeria. So it's called all different names, but it's the same thing. Really. Yeah. So yeah, I miss that. I, I, I miss that kind of a meal because when you come to the US, you are exposed to other kinds of food or types of foods. And uh, sometimes I feel like joking to my friends at home and say, I don't have friends because none of you is sending me a maize meal. We call it pap in, in, in Swaziland or porridge. So uh, sometimes I think of just teasing them and say, hey guys, I'm missing pap. Can somebody send me some pap so that I may feel like I'm home away from home and, and, and enjoy and reminisce, you know, about the times I used to enjoy this stuff at home. Yeah, and you you talking about living life close to the earth through farming and subsistence, uh, it really gives you a, a deep appreciation for life, doesn't it? Oh, big time, Perry. Um, when you, I was a boy, you know, you always aspire to go into the city, you know, city life, you know, you know, people are watching TV there and all these entertaining things that... Uh, some like new, you know, the things that are scarce in the community, which we found in the city, you want, you aspire to go there. And when you watch TV, you see big buildings, you think that's beauty when you are young. But as you grow up, you look back, you realize that real beauty is in nature. Real beauty that even beautifies you, beautifies your spirit, your mind is in nature. And I did not realize that because we, when we live that kind of life, when you live that kind of life, not very many diseases were common. You know, today people talk about diabetes, they talk about cancer, they talk about autism. I don't remember anybody being sick with such diseases. Mm -hmm. it, it was rare. 
you can break your bone and regrow it. The normal injuries that you'll have in life, or you have some kind of flu, but even flu will knock me down way back then. Sometimes you'll go out in the rain when it's cold, you still have to, you know, be mind the carefully, be a shep- do shepherding when it's super cold. But I don't remember being occasionally knocked down by flu and uh, cold or any stuff like that. People are relatively strong. And I attribute that to the food that we, we ate. One doctor, one mentioned something. As a matter of fact, this was an idea held by the ancients that all disease is one disease. Food is medicine. And I know that from a practical experience. When I heard that, I was like, for sure, I know that I live that kind of life. I pity, I live in a, in a city. I can't make my own food. I must rely on buying food. And almost everything around me is uh, genetically modified. You were talking about milk and having natural milk. And I noticed something in the supermarket here where I buy milk that most of the milk, the common brands will expire, you know, uh, two weeks from now. But there's one brand of milk they sell that is very natural, no artificial anything in the cows. The expiration date is usually two months away, at least six weeks away, two months. Sometimes it's two months away. And I thought, wow, that's such a remarkable difference between most milk Will expire really quickly, but this natural milk, still processed, some won't expire until six weeks or two months from now. There's such a difference between the quality of something that is left more natural than something that we've tried to modify and modify and modify. It it, it seems to get worse in ways. Oh yeah, the I usually speak of nature and the natural. You know, I, I love nature and the, the natural things. You know, here is one thing about that milk also. Uh, sometimes we will allow it to ferment and that becomes part of food and it becomes bitter. What you will call today, you say, oh, no, it's spoiled. I can't eat that. Some, sometimes we will allow it to ferment and it becomes so creamy and uh, somewhat bitter. That itself is medicine. I think it's been proven in medicine today that, you know, you know, the, the gut needs such things, things that are bitter. It's for our health. The things that we think they've got bacteria sometimes, there are things that are healthy for us, the gut needs it. So I only learned recently that though the milk will be viewed as bad and becomes bitter, we will still eat that that was part of our our food and nobody got sick if you will come, if you will come and have that kind of a meal you will get sick because your system is not used to it but i've learned that the ancient understood the ancient traditions understood that as you eat your food there are some things that you need which are the bit of uh, kinds of food which will your system needs uh, you know in order to you know to survive and be healthy, you do not only need all the things that are tasting sweet, they are nice and fresh. So some of the things, uh, you know, they are important, even though we may view them as bitter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because I, I have 
read a little bit about what we call spoiled milk, but if you do that naturally, it actually becomes something healthy for you. Yeah, some you kind know? of medicine, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like good bacteria. I think that's kind of what yeah. yogurt is. Yeah. And kefir yeah. and what they used to call curds and whey. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I've read about it and there's poems about it, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, it, that means we, we are on point, Kerry. <laughs> we are... I, um, the Latinos will say, you know, I learned this in law. It's say we, we are at idem, meaning we are vibrating at the same wavelength. We are connected. We understand each other. And I think this is the truth because I've learned this from a doctor. And most of the time, the things that I learn in medicine now, as I listen to doctors speak about food, I always look back to what I used to have. I had gold right in front of me, but I did not realize it because... You know, when you are young, you're always aspiring to eat this foreign food that comes from, you know, we say Western influence uh, food, the fast food, while we never had anything fast, we always had to cook things, we always had to, to grab something from the tree and eat, you know, all kinds of fruits that uh, I've never seen uh, after, you know, living that life, I've never seen them in the US. You will find them only in the wilderness, although some of the fruits will form part of the orchard that you have at home. So it was kind that kind of setup where you will have ground nuts, you will have, you know, the orchard, all kinds of fruits here, and then wilderness fruits uh, of every kind. So it was really a beautiful, healthy life that everybody would want to live. And unfortunately, we are becoming more industrialized and the way life has been organized now, life has to be life in the city where you get a job. Way back then, it wasn't so much about getting a job because you made your own food. Because the more you, when you try to get a job, it's because you want to earn money. You made your own food, you could even sell some of the food to others and make money. Obviously, <clears throat> I grew up in an era where there was already industrialization happening. Uh, people in the communities, the men will go to the mines in South Africa, and uh, any living, they will be out for months, and you'll be living on what you have, what you are able to make for yourselves. And when they come back, mostly that money is to take you to, to school. You know, that's the kind of lifestyle. You know, urban life was already happening in Swaziland, where people are working in, 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 the, in town, city council working for government, and you know, independent uh, companies and stuff, but it wasn't huge. And I, I, I can safely say that in Swaziland, we still have what today we've come to call, um, other than GMOs, we call, people call it non-GMO, organic food. We still have a great deal of that and that's cheap, but I realize that there is a trend that is growing all over the world now of turning things upside down or topsy-turvy to an extent that what is more available, accessible, cheaper is the uh, GMOs. And what becomes difficult to access and expensive is now what used to be very cheap and easily accessible the non-GMO, the organic food. And that's so strange to me as I view things that way, because we come from a way, I come from a world where the really, I mean, the food that was easily accessible, the food that we will have was 
the natural food, which now is, is turned into a market and people try to put a patent around almost everything today. It, 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 we are living in a crazy world, Gary, I must say. Yeah, and Pilo, that's a really, um, that's a really <coughs> clear, uh, trying to think of the words that I'm, I'm searching for here. Um, a really wise way to look at that. And you have a, a unique experience to look at that and see the changes that are in this world. I, I was thinking of just where I live here in Texas that uh, sometimes in the summertime, there are some things grown here that are really cheap. You can get a big basket of jalapeno peppers for just a few dollars during the summertime because they're so easy to grow here and they're fresh and lots of people grow them. <laughs> and okra, I don't know if you've ever eaten okra. That's very big here in Texas. You can get a lot of okra for pretty cheap because it grows almost like a weed in a garden. But a whole lot of things like that, that used to be cheap. Yeah, you have to pay, if you can even find it here, some good organic vegetables and fruits. Yeah, you have to pay a lot more than you do um, if you just go to the store and buy the, you know, the mass produced stuff from, from big corporations, I guess. It seems like uh, small farms are disappearing from the world, being taken over by big corporations. Yeah, that's happening almost everywhere in the world. I was following, there's a book that I'm still to read, but I've listened to some presentation done by an, an Indian scholar. Her name is uh, Vandana, Dr. Vandana Shiva. She speaks about what Monsanto has done there in just pushing out the farmers and corrupting the land and in reducing uh, GMO uh, seeds. Uh, to the people there. And the farmers, they found themselves out of business. They can't provide for their families. So she kind of like went through this activism, trying to work with the farmers, bring them back and push out Monsanto and make sure that they, they introduce back or they expand the, uh, uh, the natural seeds. Because they understand, she says that the GMO seeds, they corrupt the ground and it may be corrupted for another 10 years and with difficulty having a, a fruitful yield. The natural seeds, when you put them in back in there, they will not produce as they are expected to produce, so they get corrupted. So she has worked hard to bring that back and uh, help the farmers. The farmers now, they are happy, they are having business back, as you are saying, that the farmers are being pushed out. But in some countries where people are awake, we've got people who are enlightened, they are able to work around that and maintain the natural ground with the natural seeds. Hmm. So you talked about, uh, or you said the word enlightened there. You, you, you've had, you've had a, a spiritual journey in your life where you've got a passion and desire for seeking out wisdom and life. When did that begin in you? Do, you? do you have any time in your life where you realized that there was something spiritual that you needed to search out? You know, Gary, we all live our lives thinking that we are clever. I like to use the word clever, not wise. <laughs> and a lot of people are clever. 
we know how to get around, uh, you know, doing one thing or the other and produce the third alternative. And you think that we are faring well in life until something hits you and you realize that there is a better way of seeing first. There is a better way of seeing and only seeing and doing and living a better life. So when I finished my high school, I went to South Africa. I lived there for about two years. I was involved in um, non-governmental uh, activities, charity works. And at some point I was in, I was about 100 miles south of Johannesburg in a township. I was doing some service in a local library there, just packing books, organizing books. And somehow there was this book that stood out to me. The title was First Things First. And that's, uh, this was written by Stephen R. Covey, a very renowned uh, writer and a teacher. And I pulled it out, just that philosophical title attracted me, boy, first things first. That was kind of like tautologous. I was like, let me open and just look at the first page and I was reading and I'm like, wow, this is exciting what is contained here. Well, I couldn't sit down and continue reading. I was here to do service. So I left the library. Uh, I think the library, when they realized that I liked the book, they, I think they borrowed me for some few days. I turned it back. Uh, after some time, I got my own copy. And when, particularly when I returned back to Swaz and I got my own copy and studied it. And from there, you know, one book after another, you know, came, I was aware of a lot of books and I was like, boy, I've been living this life where I've not been reading, not been aware of what we call self-development literature. You know, Stephen Alcovey, the way he writes, sometimes you'll find that at the back, you will have a list of what you will term wisdom literature. And when I read the book, I go inside and look at the footnotes. Sometimes there is a really wonderful quote there. I'm like, oh, well, who is he quoting there? And I'll go back to the back of the book and I realize he's quoting Plato. And that's how I'll get to know about Plato. And I'll go and try and get Plato's Republic and read. And then Aristocles, Nicomachean Ethics and read. Go to the East uh, and, and find the Yucasantras of Patanjali, who was a, a great, uh, uh, should I say, a mystic in India. And he writes spiritual uh, stuff. And I ended up going into Confucian uh, uh, philosophy. And I, I haven't really explored much of Buddha, but I do come across a lot of material that speaks about Buddhism and, and, and what it's all about. And so many books started coming in. I was aware and this passion for knowledge grew such that I started growing up my own library. You know, some of my favorite writers, uh, uh, James Allen, a Victorian writer, one of the famous books. It's a little volume of about 27 pages, but it's a lifetime study. You know, it's called As a Man Thinketh in His Heart. He writes it in 1903, and he wrote a number about over 10 or 12 uh, books within the period of 1903 and 19, 1912. And I've read almost everything that uh, he has written, trying to get, you know, 
his thinking, his mind in relating to, to, to mind itself and how the mind operates. Because as a man thinker, he's treating the subject of mind and how it operates in bringing us a, a misery, in, playing, in bringing us happiness. Not only him, I've read other books such as, um, there was a, a judge in the 1800s, I think is one of the fascinating writers of the past 200 years. His name is Judge Thomas Troward. He descended from England and became a, a divisional judge in India, Punjab. And one of his writings is uh, Edinburgh Lectures on Mental Science. So I've always had this uh, excitement to learn about the mind and how it operates. And he, oh boy, so philosophical and beautiful. And the other book that I've read is the creative, uh, I'm forgetting the title, but it has to do with the creative power in the individual. And the other one is the spirit of opulence that I've read uh, from the same author. And a lot of um, contemporary, um, I mean, writers today uh, that have read, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the books, but uh, that's just how my quest for knowledge, quest for enlightenment, quest for spirituality began and I find myself, I, I grew up in a religious family, you know, where we, we are taught that there is a God in heaven who loves us, who has created us, and it is Jesus Christ who is the savior and all that. So I got also invested into religious philosophy because I did not only just read spiritual literature uh, in relation to the various philosophies out there by individual sages and the wise ones, but also studying the man Christ. And I went in depth trying to understand uh, what he's all about. And as others narrate about him in the history of Christianity, somehow you get to know a little bit more about Judaism and other, and, uh, and other um, religions. And uh, being aware of the so-called monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and, and also other religions too. But the, the real love was more philosophy and enlightenment. Uh, I don't know if I have <laughs> mentioned something that catches your thinking in what I've said about the history of my uh, coming or uh, having interest in enlightenment and spirituality and uh, wisdom literature. Oh, absolutely. There are two things that really touched me that I can relate to. Um, I'll, I'll touch on the second one to start is you talking about how you would be looking at a book and looking at the footnotes and see where that quote came from. And then you would read, you know, Oh, I'm going to read this person and read that person. I have done so much of that. You know, I would, there would be a quote in a book I'm reading and by somebody's name in another book. And I would think, well, I want to go look at that book. I want to see everything they've written. And so I would go find that book. And that, that desire for that knowledge um, attributed to uh, me finding and learning all sorts of beautiful things. And, but the first thing you said was uh, when you were sorting those books, that one just jumped out to you. It was a, a draw to you. Uh, do you find that there is a natural pattern in life that 
what you need in this moment gets maybe sometimes brought to you in front of you and something within you just knows it? The ancient teachers, I think it has come also to our day. They will say, I think it's Lao Tse who said, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. To me, that's natural law that you are raising. I, I believe in that. I believe that we attract um, James Allen, my, one of my favorite writers that I've mentioned earlier on, he says that we don't get what we want, we get what we are, which is uh, an interesting philosophical uh, uh, way of putting it. Sometimes we are so stressed that, that we are not getting one thing or the other, while we have not raised our vibration to a level where we vibrate at the same level with what we want. So we must first become what we want in order to attract it into our lives. Um, I'm told that in the 1500s, there was um, Michael Angelo, when he was working on the sculpt, uh, in, in a sculpture, in a, was it Francis in way back in Italy, he, he first had to be the sculpt before he could carve it. So it has to be completely in his mindset, in his being, before he could carve it. So that's an interesting natural law that we must first become what we want in life. Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating because looking back at my life, there were so many things that came to me that I was aware of. And they came right at the exact moment that I was able to receive it. Probably many times that happened and I was unaware of it, but I can definitely tell many times that that happened and I was aware of it. And it's happened just with books. Sometimes these books would come and it was exactly when I needed it. And I would know if this came five years ago, I would have rejected it because I wasn't ready for it. But now I'm ready for it and it makes sense and it touches me somewhere deeply inside. And those are some of the pivotal moments of my life that changed my perspective, opened up new opportunities for me to learn and made me realize that I don't know a whole lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, Gary. Uh, I, I just have a thought about uh, the subject matter. You know, I'm reminded of, because the world we live in, the universe we live in is governed by law. You know, when once we have that striking our mind, we start looking for the laws so that we may obey them. Because then there's nothing that escape law. Everything is governed by law. And uh, I'm reminded of James Allen again, because I have a, a lot of his words in my head. He says, um, I hope I won't butcher his words. I hope I will stick with the, the original uh, content. He says, not what he wishes and prays for does a man get, but what he justly ends. His, his wishes and prayers are only gratified and answered when they're in harmony with his thoughts and action. So just right there, that's beautiful philosophy, suggesting that, you know, people who are religious, they will pray so hard and they become heartbroken and end up giving up this, believing that God will ever help them achieve one thing or the other. But you find that if you really watch close and study yourself, your mind is not there, your actions are not there. You are just, you know, praying, praying hard, 
while you do not behave in the manner or in line with what you want. Going back to what we've said, you have to vibrate in line and be ready for what you want. You have to be one with it. You have to be spiritually married to it before can, it can physically build up and come to you. For instance, some people dream about having this beautiful car. And as they have the strong desire, because desire is a law, uh, you know, faith is a law. That's some of the laws that come in our lives. As you have this deep desire and work towards the thing, you know, somebody somewhere across the world will be building this nice car that will eventually through, you know, commerce, and it will eventually go across the seas and get to the U.S. and eventually it is in Texas where Gary is. And all of a sudden, Gary is going down the street. He is prepared and then he sees, this is the car that I want. And then he goes on to make the transaction. This is not chance. This is law. We are, this is not accident. You know, in our generation, when we are not enlightened, we, you know, we call certain things that we don't understand miraculously as if it's something magical while everything operates by law. Okay, as far as I understand uh, the world I'm living in. Mm. So you, you've learned a lot of this uh, value in life from these authors that you have read. Um, but you'd mentioned to me in an email that uh, you had a stressful time when you were working through your master's degree in law and uh, you even had to uh, get some help with that. So how, how did that, uh, how did that work in your life where you had a foundation of things, but you also went through a real challenging time? Well, when I came to the U S um, I, to the university, you know, there's a lot to read than I've experienced before. I used to read in the university before I came to the U.S., before I became an attorney, as I was studying my first degree in law. Uh, I used to read, read cases and uh, read uh, authoritative writings. You know, that's part of what you do as a, a law student. So when I got into the U.S., there was so much to read. And that made me have less sleep and having these anxieties and worries. And when you have sleep, you go to class, you, you will not be that attentive and you will not learn a great deal because you have to be relaxed and be, you know, to, having had rest over the night in order to be able to concentrate and learn more. So I ended up having a lot of something, things to read because there are various causes, you move from this class to another, that also demands a lot of reading. Sometimes you will find that you have to read about over 200 pages of content for a week and understand that concept. I mean, understand the concept there, understand the law there so that you can be able to participate in class. And you also have assignments where you have to write, answer certain questions, you have to go home and the research and write. So that started piling up and there was just a lot. I felt so stressed. But the major stress was that I was doing antitrust law. I think that's where I had a really huge problem. Antitrust law, it's more, it is more of econ it has more economics than any other 
low subject that I had studied before. So I had never done economics. So I'd never been introduced to economics. So that was so stressful because I had to read day and night, you know, research. So, you know, sometimes when you read one book, it may not explain, it may not use your language, Gary, when you read it. But you read the same subject in another book, you find that it explained in a language that you understand better. So it required me to spend more time reading and as you spending more time reading one subject, the others are lagging behind because you're trying to understand this difficult concept. And um, that stressed me a lot. I ended up seeking the help of a psychologist uh, in the university. I went and visited with them. I had a couple of sessions, but something interesting happened. I didn't feel like I was getting helped. I didn't feel like just talking with them, sharing, uh, my frustrations and some of my psychological challenges. Uh, I, you know, I would go out and feeling like, oh, that was another waste of my time, you know. And it dawned on me that real help comes from within. All power comes from within. That's one lesson that I learned practically because in my life, I've always thought when I have stress and I'm feel like I'm weighed down, I need to see a psychologist. But this time I went to see a psychologist. Not that the person was bad, not that psychologists are irrelevant, they are important, that's an important industry. But there's just this one lesson that I learned that all power comes from within solutions. As one philosopher said that the door to the solutions of our problems opens inward, not outward. So that is so much, but we are not tutored that way that we need to go in, do mindfulness, you know, meditation, which is something that has always been there. The ancient lived on that. People, you know, will go out to nature and sit there and, you know, refresh and all that. So that's one lesson that I learned that the psychologists, they, in psychotherapy, they just take you through the process of realization that the power really comes from you. They do not come with the peer with the solution. You are the solution because the problem begins inside you. And in my judgment, just right next to the problem, which began right inside you is the solution to your problem. So psychologists and uh, psychotherapists and uh, people of uh, that caliber, they help you realize that. And the most skillful ones, I think, they walk you through or they, they allow you to take them to the center of the problem. And as they realize the center of the problem, you both realize the problem, they also allow you to, you know, to lead them to the solution such that both of you can find the solution and realize the solution is inside. I don't know if that makes sense, Gary. That does make sense. I began to become aware of that myself a few years ago with very simple things uh, that were taught to me, recognizing that everything I experience, I experience within myself. I don't experience anything outside of myself. It's, always, it's all experienced here. And so when I became aware of that, more things started you know, arising within me to understand what you said, that the answers are within me which would frustrate me when I would try to find answers from somebody else and couldn't get them. I didn't understand I had to look here. And I began to understand one day that 
even the very best teacher who's ever lived on the earth, the most that they, the best help they could ever give to someone was just to help them to look. They could just point where to look. They can't give, you can't give someone the answer. They have to see it for themselves. And once I began, began to realize that like, oh, no one can give me the answer because what I'm looking for is UPS to show up at my door with the answer box, you know, a little <laughs> pill like, oh, everything's good now. <laughs> but no, I had to put the effort in and give my own attention to what was going on within me. And when I began to do that, it's like you said, and I love the way you said it, the problem and the answer are sitting right next to each other. <laughs> oh, yeah, Gary. Um, going back to James Allen again, hey, he has a beautiful way of putting this, how we, you know, we make ourselves at the same time we can destroy ourselves. He says, mind is the master power that molds and makes. And man, and man is mind. And evermore, he takes the tools of thought and shaping what he wills, he brings forth a thousand joys, a thousand ills. He thinks in secret and it comes to pass. Environment is but his looking class. So just right there is a, 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 some great philosophy, some great thought that we... Man is mind, really. And if you really want to make some uh, radical or serious change, you go to the mind. It's been said that all change begins in the mind. Whatsoever you go through, when you are tutored well about the mind, you understand it. When you are taken by the law of rhythm with mood swings, unlike animals or trees or the rest of nature, you have the will, you have the power to rise above that and decide by use of independent will what to do and change your mood to something different. And you've got various options, Gary. Mm, Pilo, that's a wonderful way to put it. I, I, you had mentioned James Allen so much that I, I looked him up real quick. So I'm going to do some <laughs> reading on him today. I, I don't know if I've, I've heard of him, but new new sources and new people to look at is always fascinating to me so oh yeah Gary we learn from each other every yeah, day yeah <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> yeah well and Pilo what uh we we have probably closing in on on uh, on uh, wrapping this up <clears throat> if you were to uh to leave our listener with one thing of value that you've learned in your life that has helped you on your on your journey and helped you grow and learn and uh what uh what would you share let me start with some philosophical thought right there uh, one eastern philosopher said if you seek happiness for yourself you, it will always elude you but if you seek happiness for others you will always find it yourself I think that's a, a very good and intelligent uh, foundation for what I would say. I've learned in life that happiness is getting out there involved and be interested in other people's lives. Mm. I've learned that happiness is really in service, you know, uh, giving service to others. We all know that the people that we consider to be really great men and great women 
are men and women who have dedicated their lives uh, to making life better for others, to making this a better world we, we, we live in. So I am so much about uh, living my life to an, uh, to, to an extent that I contribute to other people's life. You know, we all sometimes get lost and uh, for certain reasons, certain things, we go through certain uh, experiences in life and we lose track a little bit, but once we come back to our senses, we must know that in order to be really happy, we should stop focusing in ourselves. We should stop, you know, worrying about ourselves, but, you know, uh, extending ourselves out there and um, helping other people. Uh, an English philosopher by the name of um, uh, Bertram Russell, he was a mathematician too. I don't know if you know him. He spoke about that early on in his life, he was miserable. He hated life. In his adolescent stage, he, he felt like you know, many times he, he was suicidal. He felt like committing suicide, killing himself. But there's something that kept him from doing that. His strong desire for mathematics. He always wanted to learn mathematics and uh, do all kinds of things with mathematics. And later on, he discovered that the reason he was miserable and always at the age of suicide was because he was focusing on his imperfections, his inadequacies his sins, his weaknesses and all that. And that gave this vicious cycle. And he was kind of like degenerating as we all do when we do that. But he learned that in his life, he had to look outside himself and interest of life, interest in other people, interest in things in life and focus on them. That's when his life changed. You know, that speaks to the life, of, I mean, to the law of focus that whatsoever we focus on grows. If we focus on our weaknesses, our problems and whatnot, they grow. And when you change that and decide to focus on other things, wholesome things, serving others and all that, those things grow too and they impact our life differently and we become happy. So that's about what I can say that we need to, in a world that is uh, becoming more darker and darker and troublesome with all what is happening today, I think we need to connect more with others and find joys in, in, in giving, in helping one another. Thank you, Gary. Pilo, that was a beautiful uh, uh, way to kind of summarize everything that you've brought to our conversation today. I thought it was great. Um, well, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. I'm so glad that you came on that we could talk and and uh, dive into deep things of life. And I hope that our listener got some great value out of this because I sure got great value out of our conversation today. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed myself. <laughs> great. Well, maybe we'll talk again and, and do another show here in the future. Oh, that would be awesome. I would love to have you in my show too. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm up for that sometime. So let me know. Oh, yeah, I will do that, Gary. Thank okay. you so much. All right, Mpilo. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a good day. You too.